And I want to ask a couple of questions uh, to begin this evening. And, and uh, before I do that, though, I just want to point out my parents are here this evening. I want to thank them for, for coming. I want to acknowledge uh, something about them that I think probably we all have in common to some degree or another, and that is the effect that our parents have on our worldview, on the way that we see God and the way that we see each other and the way that we understand the world. And I want to thank them publicly for that. Um, not only directly, yes, in teaching, but also indirectly through uh, the importance that they uh, place on education and some of those kinds of things. And, and I believe this week, uh, what the, the way that we're teaching our children uh, in, a, in a week of Bible school like this is, is critical to, uh, to helping them understand and shape and form a worldview. So I want to commend you in that. Um, a couple of questions to get us started, and hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully uh, you know the answer to some of these questions. I guess we'll see how good of a, good of a teacher I am or how good you are at retaining information. Um, why are worldviews important to our understanding of origins? What are worldviews and why are they important? Anyone have an answer to that? It's the filter by which we see everything. Good. Anything else? Why are worldviews important? There's a specific worldview that we talked about last evening called naturalism. What is naturalism? Does anyone remember? Matter is the only thing. The physical is the only thing. There's no spiritual. There's, so therefore, there's no God. Uh, there's no supernatural. There, all that is is what we can see. That's the, that's the belief of naturalism. <clears throat> Do all Christians believe in the literal six days of creation? That's a tricky question. But go ahead. Somebody dive into that. Okay, yeah. And, and, uh, and that's, you know, that's between them and God, you know, and... and as I thought about the idea of salvation that Chris talked about last night, um, I, I'm not going to get more into that now, but I think we'll, we'll dig into this more throughout the week. But there are people who call themselves Christians, and I believe there are some that are Christians who do not believe in the literal six days of creation. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? They can still believe in Jesus Christ. They can still go to heaven. They can still believe what Jesus said, right? Why does it matter? Does it matter? <clears throat> okay, that's a very good point. Okay, all right. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard that before. I probably have, but I don't recall. Very good. And Chris touched on that this evening as well. You know, if we, if we do away with the idea of the six days of creation and we don't take that portion of, this, of the Bible literally, why would we take Jesus' teachings literally? Why would we believe that they're for us today? And why would we take Paul's teachings literally and on down the line? <clears throat> So it's critical, I believe, that we take Genesis literally as history, that it historically happened. So it certainly does matter. Just wanted to wrap up a little bit from last night. Talking about the uh, root of modern naturalism. First thing that we do as the first thing that naturalists do is forget or minimize God. So we talked about Christian theism last evening. 
uh, Christian theism being the idea that God is transcendent, uh, that God is above all, that God is separate from his creation, that God is different from his creation, and yet he still is, he intensely cares about who we are and what we do. And so the first step in, in the idea of modern naturalism is to forget or minimize God. And that's really, the step is the idea of deism, where there's still a belief in God, but it's just that God kind of got the ball rolling and then stepped out and walked away, so to speak. Secondly, then, observe the world and conduct observational science. Observe what happens around us, come to conclusions. And there's nothing wrong with science. There's nothing wrong with observational science, and we'll dig into that a little bit more on a later evening. And then assume that everything that is happening today has always happened in the same way and at the same rate as it has in the past. So we make assumptions about what we see today and extrapolate that over the, over the past to make assumptions, assumptions about the past. And then using number two and three, which is observation and the assumption, we attempt to calculate back in time and figure out when things happened and how they happened. Now, is there anything wrong with that? What's, what's, what's the... What's the core issue with, with, uh, with this kind of philosophy? Want us to think about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, forgetting or minimizing God is the core thing. That's obvious. But beyond that, as, as we come down through numbers two and three, particularly number three, as we look into the past, how do we know what happened in the past? How do we know how it happened? Or when it happened? We'll dig into that a bit more uh, this evening and over the, the coming couple of evenings. So how should we as Christians view science and scientific discoveries? Again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we, that we stay away from science. I think that there's a portion of science that has done uh, a lot of good and we, we've learned a lot. And really, the foundation of science, as we'll talk about tomorrow evening, is that God is... The lawgiver is, uh, the, the, uh, the creator is, and therefore science makes logical sense. And therefore we can do science, and therefore we have the laws of science, and we can do experiments. And if, if something happens some, a certain way one time, then if we do the exact same thing, the same thing's going to happen the next time because there's a lawgiver, because there's a creator, because there's an order. And, and that's really the foundation of science. So as Christians, we are to start with the scripture and the authority of God's word, that is to be the foundation. Again, not the, the foundation of, of, uh, of not believing in God, but rather the foundation of scripture and the authority of God's word. Believe the Bible as truth, interpret science through it, rather than forcing the Bible into a mold formed by science. Now here's a question for you. Does the Bible ever contradict science? Okay. Any other ideas? Does the Bible ever contradict science? Okay, what's the definition of science? I'm going to sidestep that question a bit and let you decide. Does the Bible ever contradict, that's, that's a great question, an important one. Does the Bible ever contradict science? Any other ideas? Okay, and that's, that's a very valid question. And I think that ties back into what you were saying. I'm curious what, what you meant by that, by your answer. Okay, all right. Okay, miracles contradict science. Here's, here's where I want to go with this, and, and, I, and I think you have a valid point. Again, when we do observational science, when we do a, sci- a science experiment in the lab, when we mix things together and, and create, and, and, and uh, not create things, but create, you know, mix things together to come up with, 
with different uh, elements and et cetera, et cetera, on down the line, we can depend on those things that they're true. The, the Bible never says, well, if you, if you mix this element and this element, you're going to get this. The Bible talks about things that have happened in the past. The problem with science is when it tries to dig into history and say, because of what we observe today, therefore, this is what's happened in the past. Science is based on observation today and therefore is no authority over the past and over history. The Bible, on the other hand, was written down by eyewitnesses, including God himself, and therefore is the authority over history in the past. And we'll look at that difference uh, in more detail on another evening. Um, But science, as we observe it in the lab, and and we'll talk more about miracles. I appreciated your comment on that. We'll talk more about, about miracles and how they how they break out of, out of the mold of what we would expect to see. <clears throat> so tonight we're going to uh, dig into a little bit more on the idea of evolution. And, and the reason why I feel that it's important to talk about evolution is because I believe, like I said last night, that evolution is really the foundation of what the naturalists believed. When man can, can say and can believe that we know where we came from, now suddenly they can say, well, we don't really need God. Because we, we know where we've come from. We've know, we know how we've evolved. We know that it's been chance. We know that it's, that it's been over millions of years and all these kinds of things. So we don't really need God. And so I believe if we can show the fallacies of evolution, uh, we can do away with uh, the foundation of the naturalist. But we'll, look at, we'll, give this, we'll, we'll take a look at this in a couple of different ways and see if, if this theory has any merit. By the way, evolution is a theory. It's not the fact of evolution. It's the theory of evolution. <clears throat> and it's a theory because you can never prove it because you weren't there. Now, we discussed last night briefly how important our view of God is. And the question, don't answer this out loud, but think in your mind, how important is it how I view God? How, how important is my view of God to what I do, uh, to how I respond to situations, to how I view life? A.W. Tozer said it this way, and I'm guessing probably some of you have heard of this before. Um, He says that what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, Now, if somebody were to ask you point blank, what's the most important thing about you? Probably that's not the the thing that comes, that's on the top of our mind that that we would think of, of first. But I believe that there's a lot of truth to that. I would strongly recommend Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's just a small book, thin book. But it dives into various um, attributes of God and, and d- digs into them just as far as we can go, just as far as our minds can comprehend. Um, and it's, it's a very good read, and it attempts to help us elevate our view of God. Our Western culture, and I believe we get this from, uh, from, from the Greek culture, a lot of our Western culture comes from them, we tend to um, de-elevate God or kind of pull him down to our level, so to speak. One way that we do that is if, uh, if I were to write, if I had a chalkboard up here and I were to write um, God and angels and man and plants and all these different things, I'd write them in levels. So I'd have God at the top, <clears throat> I'd have angels next, and then I have man and then I have animals, plants, uh, and I'm not sure what I'd, ha- what I'd have below that, but I'd, I'd have things in an order, uh, in a list. And that's really not the way it is at all. God doesn't belong on a list like that. God does not belong on that list. What's, what's the basic difference? What's the basic difference between God and everything else on that list? I'm curious what the first thing is that comes to your mind. What's the basic difference 
between, between God and everything else that we can put on that list. He created it? Yeah, he created it. He's the creator, and we are the created. And we don't even belong on the same list. We're not even in the same realm. We're not even close to the same. Um, A.W. Tozer, again, in his book, he, he mentions something along this line. I don't think I have this exactly right, but something along this line that, that we are closer in, in size and understanding and knowledge and strength and, and all those things to an ant than we are to God. Now, I want to be a little bit careful about that because we are made in God's image, okay? But as far as size and strength and even as far as understanding, we're closer to the ant than to God. God is so much, there's such a vast gulf between us and God that we can't even fathom it. We can't even begin to understand it. And I think that's kind of step one in this whole process, in this whole thought process for us is to understand, just, and, and we, we can't fully understand it, but to just try our best to grasp the awesomeness of God. God is created, God is uncreated, and we are created. So that's the major difference between us and God. So tonight, we're going to dig a little bit more into uh, evolution uh, and, and talk about a number of things here, and we'll see how much time we have. Uh, there's, there's a number of cracks in the naturalist foundation of evolution that I want to talk about this evening. Uh, the, first, the very first one is the problem of origins. We talked a little bit about this last evening. The problem of origins. Secondly, the moral argument. Thirdly, complexity. Uh, fourthly, then, debunking proofs of evolution. Uh, we'll probably get it, dig into that, a little bit of that. And then explanation of races if we have time uh, towards the end of the evening. So the problem of origins is the first thing that we want to talk about. Was the universe always here? Now, as, as Christians, as creationists, we would say no. That's our understanding. What we know from the Bible, what we know to be fact from Scripture is that the universe was not always here. But this is a challenging question for someone who doesn't believe in God. This is a challenging question for them to answer. There's only two answers to this question. One is yes, and one is no. There's no middle ground. And so if you answer no, the universe was not always here, well then who created it? How did it get here? How did it come about? How did it happen? It had to start somewhere. So who did that? And if the answer is yes, then you're admitting that there's something eternal. And I think that's the first step when we're talking to someone who's a naturalist, who has the idea that everything's physical, that there's no spiritual, there's no supernatural. I believe that's one of the first steps is to help people to understand no matter what your worldview is, no matter how you answer this specific question, you do believe in something eternal. There had to be something eternal. And if the universe was not always here, then there had to be a creator before that. And if that creator was created by someone, there had to be something before that. And before that, no matter how far back you go, there had to be something eternal. And we'll, we'll talk the last evening, on Thursday evening then, about how uh, that points to God. The second issue is where did knowledge, information, and intelligence come from? If, if this started without God, if, if you try to put a model together of the earth and the world starting without God, where did where did knowledge, information, and intelligence come from? Um, I, I mentioned that John Lennox is one of my uh, sources of information for the week. Um, he's a mathematician at Oxford University in England, and he talks to a lot of scientists. He, he, mathematics, what he does, is a science. And so he interacts with a lot of, a lot of scientists. 
And, and he tells a story about how when he's talking one-on-one with these scientists, he'll, he'll ask them, you know, a little, bit, a little bit about what they do and about, um, you know, how, how they go about their science or how they go about their experiments. And the scientists are kind of like us. When, when, we're, when somebody asks us what we do, we like to talk about the big machines or the, the latest software, all these neat things that we're working on in our business and, and, and how they work and how they, they make things easier and, and, uh, and allow us to do things more efficiently and faster. And so that's kind of the path that these scientists go down. You know, they talk about the latest million-dollar machine that their college just purchased or those kinds of things. But then John goes on to say, I'm not talking about the machines. I'm talking about you specifically. How do you do science? How do you process things and think through things? And, and then they, they get the picture. Oh, you're talking about my mind. You're talking about brain. You're talking about information and knowledge and logic and understanding. And, they, and then the answer, their answer to that typically is, well, that, that was the process of millions of years of mindless and unguided processes. Now let's think through that a minute. Would we trust a scientist whose machine is the product of millions of years of mindless, unguided processes? Would we trust his machine? Would we trust his research if it was the end product of mindless and unguided processes? And yet, we're willing to trust, there's a, there's a subset of people in our world that are willing to trust their brains even though they themselves believe that it's just the product of mindless and unguided processes. There's, a, there's an issue with that. It was the chemist uh, J.B.S. Haldane that pointed this out. And I want you to catch this. If the thoughts of my mind are just motions of atoms in my brain, why should I believe anything it tells me, including the fact that it is made of atoms? And yet many scientists have adopted that naturalistic view, seemingly unaware that it undermines the very rationality upon which their scientific research depends. I'm going to read just the first portion of that again. If the thoughts of my mind are just the motions of atoms in my brain, why should I believe anything that it tells me? So if we don't know where knowledge or information or intelligence came from, how can we trust it? How can we trust it if we don't know what its source is? It's, a, it's self-refuting to trust in our brain if it is a product of mindless, unguided processes. Another issue with this is where did life come from? Where did life itself come from? Um, there's, there's uh, been numerous uh, experiments done and, and continue to be done where they try to create life out of matter and energy because the belief is that those were the two things that were present at the Big Bang. The two things that were present at the Big Bang were matter and energy. Therefore, if we can somehow figure out how matter and energy, we can somehow produce a way in which matter and energy can form life in a test tube, then we've solved part of that problem, the problem of life coming from matter and energy. Well, that's, that's never been proven. That's never happened in observation, by observation in, in, in the science lab. Uh, there was one time uh, that they thought it happened, and then they found out later that it was tampered with, the evidence was tampered with, and that it, it didn't actually happen like they had thought. So where did life itself come from? If only mass and energy were present at the beginning, how could life form? And we know that there was something else present at the beginning. Now these first two points, uh, these first two bullet points are actually from uh, a book by Richard Dawkins called The God Delusion. Richard Dawkins is probably one of the most prominent atheists of our day. Uh, very, um, very brilliant man in his own right, in his own field, in his field of science. 
And, and that's, what, that's what's challenging for us to grapple with is that you have these men that are brilliant in their own field of science. But as soon as they step out of that and dive into the, the area of philosophy or religion or of origins and those kinds of things, which are philosophy or religion, uh, then they begin to, to lose their way a bit. These first two bullet points actually come from his book, and he says this way, the appearance of design in the universe is overwhelming. He acknowledges that. He also acknowledges that there's no explanation for this design in physics. We can't physically find an explanation. Why was this, why was, why is it designed? Why does it appear designed? And so uh, they've developed what's called the multi-universe theory, and I find this to be really, really interesting uh, because it's, it sort of has an element of truth to it. And it goes something like this. The multi-universe theory is that there's another universe out there where there's an intelligence, where there's information, where there's a knowledge, where there's, where there's a life that has evolved high enough that they were able to create life and seed it on our planet. But then, where did that universe get their intelligence? And so we continue back through that cycle. If that's what happened... Where did, where did they get it from? And where did that universe get it from? And on down the line. And so there's an understanding by science, through science, through experiments, by observation, that our world is very obviously designed by someone. And, and that's, that's, I believe, one proof that science and the Bible do not conflict. Because that points to a creator. The next argument then is the moral argument. The next challenge, I should say, with evolution is the moral argument. Um, and what I find really interesting in, in the study of, of different societies and religions and, th and things is that all religions and societies have the same basic moral code. Nearly all of them include some form of the golden rule, uh, which is to you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, what does that point to? Does that point to an evolutionary process or does that point to a universal creator who created all of mankind and all societies? And again, uh, I'll just give a little bit of, a, of a, uh, a quote here by Richard Dawkins, the atheist. He says it this way, In a universe of blind physical forces and generic replication, some people are getting hurt, other people are getting lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should, expect, we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Therefore, no morals. And I added that myself there at the end. Then he goes on to say, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows or cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. We just do what we do because we are, and that's, and that's all that there is. Now, there's other atheists like Peter Singer, another very uh, popular, uh, well-studied man who believes that one can be moral outside of God. Now, the idea of the moral argument does present some challenges because, and I'll, I'll let you answer this question, are we better off morally with God or without God? And I think that's an obvious, obvious answer. We're better off with God. But, then let's, but, but, let's, but let's think about that a little bit. What about the terrorists? What about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? What about all those things that were done through the years in the name of religion, even in the name of Christianity, where we would have been better off 
in a sense, as a human race without religion. And one of the, one of the challenges that we have to face is that our past, uh, the past, the history of Christendom is not always pretty. We didn't always follow Christ like we should have. But I, but I, want, us to, I want us to point, when, when we think about these things, when we talk about these things, we need to be pointing back to Christ. Because if we really follow Christ's commands, if, if we really walk the way that he taught us to walk, the way that Chris is talking about this week, you, you don't have things like the Crusades. You don't have things like the Inquisition. You don't have those ugly parts about Christianity. And so one of the, one of the things that's, that's challenging for us, I believe, as a people, and for us as Christians, first of all, how do we respond to those, um, to those people who would accuse us, you know, hey, these negative things, these bad things were done in the name of Christianity. But how are we living today? Are we, are we living different? Are we living lives that are for the kingdom? Are we living lives where, where we're doing what's best for other people, not just, not just gathering for ourselves? And I believe that's an encouragement to us. Uh, one, of the, one of the best things we can do to help people see who God is is by how we live. We're not going to win them over by debating against them. We're not going to win them over by knowing everything about what they believe and all those kinds of things. Uh, but by how we live is the best way, the best thing that we can do uh, to help them see more about who God is. So again, the question, why do all religions and societies have a basic moral code? And that obviously points to a creator. The moral argument, uh, just kind of going going on this a, a little bit farther, um, if you believe that there is no creator, there is no God, then who decides what is right and wrong? This is, this is exactly what our culture is dealing with right now. We're dealing with this right now. Who decides what is right and wrong? Is right and wrong relative? Does it change over time? If so, who decides when it changes and why? And one, one really uh, <clears throat> kind of interesting thing in our culture right now is as we look back at the Constitution, and we look at some of the things that were right and wrong then, and we look at how we're interpreting that today, and how some of those right and wrong things have changed over time, it's very telling of, of the direction of our culture. And again, the Constitution was not, was not framed by, um, by those who necessarily believed in God as we believe in God, probably more by deists um, than theists in that case. And yet we see these things rapidly changing over time. But, but these are some of the questions that we need to ask, that we need to be aware of, uh, that we need to be willing to talk about when we interact with someone who doesn't believe in God. And we interact with someone that, that talks about good and that talks about evil, but doesn't have a, a foundation or a basis for it. These are some of the questions uh, that we need to be asking. If something is right today, who is to say if it will be right tomorrow or vice versa? And I'll just go through a couple of other things here. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Uh, and why are humans born with an innate desire for purpose and meaning? You see, the ideas of purpose and meaning are even beyond the ideas of knowledge and understanding and logic. It's a real stretch uh, to, to believe that logic and knowledge came from matter and energy. But it's, it's an even probably greater stretch to believe that purpose and meaning can come out of knowledge and logic itself. Purpose and meaning has to have a greater a greater perspective, a greater view than just knowledge and logic. 
Uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, maybe a minute or so, talking about complexity, and then I'll wrap it up with a couple of questions that I want us to discuss uh, then tomorrow evening. Um, the idea, the challenge of complexity is that uh, in the idea of evolution, you see organisms going from something uh, very simple to very complex. And so the question that we need to ask, and we need to be willing to ask is, is there anything that we can observe today in which um, you know, a mutation resulted in more information being added to the genome uh, over, over time? And the answer to that question is no, and we'll hopefully get to go into that in a little more detail tomorrow evening. But I have a couple of questions here uh, in closing that I want to discuss tomorrow evening. Uh, you don't have to write these down, but I would, I would like you to think about them, and maybe the best way to do that is to write them down. The first one has to do with faith. And, and, and here's, here's just a little bit of background to this question. So the first question is, is faith good or bad? And, and uh, I want us to understand that faith is actually a very dangerous thing. Because if you had a sea captain that was getting ready to get into his boat, and he said, you know what, I'm not going to check the boat, I'm just going to get in, and everyone else is going to come in, and we're just going to have faith in God that, that we can cross this ocean, we'll be fine. That's, that's a very dangerous proposition. Faith is an extremely, extremely dangerous thing. And I want you to think about that uh, for tomorrow evening. So the question that I have is, is faith valuable to us, and is it necessary? And how is our faith if faith is a very dangerous thing, how, how can we claim to use it in the proper way? I want, I want you to just, just kind of be thinking through those kinds of things. Think about the sea captain and the ship and think about faith and think about the danger of faith. The second question that I have for you that I want you to think about, why would an all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good God allow suffering? That's probably one of the hardest questions for us to answer a God that knows everything and a God that controls everything and a God that we know is good, why would he allow suffering? And we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow evening. The third question that I, then that I have is, why would a God who is all-powerful need to kill himself because of the sin problem? I mean, couldn't he find another way if he's all-powerful? Could he not find another way? And the reason I bring up these three questions is I believe that these are three questions that we're going to face more and more and more as time goes on here in our culture. And I'll just repeat those again. Um, since, since we know that faith can be a dangerous thing, how, how, do we, how do we know that we're using it properly? Or how do we know that, why are we so confident in our faith if, if we know that it can be such a dangerous thing? Secondly, why would an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God allow suffering? And then thirdly, why would a God who is all-powerful need to kill himself for the sin problem? Is he not big enough, strong enough, powerful enough uh, to find another way? So be thinking about those questions. Uh, tomorrow evening, uh, we're going to touch on creationism and the belief in God. And we're going to look at the source of science and uh, where, science, where science comes from.